Thank you for tuning in to another episode of One More Story. Just a quick programming note, parents, if you'd like to skip past the interview and go straight to the first story, you can find it at the 20 minute, 20 second mark, but soon you will not have to. We are adding a story only subscription tier where for the low, low price of $2.99 a month, you will have access to just the stories. No more skipping ahead. And as we grow the show, this tier will remain ad free. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy tonight's episode. My guest tonight is a writer, television host, podcaster, producer, and former MTV VJ, Dave Holmes. Welcome to the show. Pete, how are you? I'm good, man. Did I miss anything there? Pop culture savant? Sure, sure. I mean, well, I do. Yeah, I do a lot of different things, but you hit the good ones. So I got to admit, I am, I am actually a little bit nervous about this episode. Why? Well, because I was a fan, so because I was obsessed, as as many people in this country were, with the MTV VJ contest between you and Jesse Camp. Like I, oh I was totally consumed that summer. Was that summer of ninety eight? I think. Well, it was April of nineteen ninety eight. Tell me a little bit about that. How you entered that? Like how you got on that track? Okay. Well, I mean, that was not a track. That was that was like a that was a cannon that uh, got shot out of. But I was living in New York. It was 1998. I had moved there after college, Holy Cross. Stayed very Catholic all through college, and uh, and then I moved to, uh, to New York immediately after and started working in advertising. I was not very good at it. I had a very kind of spreadsheetsy kind of practical kind of job that I hoped would turn into a creative, like a copywriting job, but that's not really how it works. So, so I was, um, I was working in advertising and always on the verge of getting fired. <laughs> and I saw on billboard.com, which I checked every, uh, I believe it was Tuesday morning would be when the, uh, when the charts came out and I, I checked billboard.com cause I didn't have the, you know, you wouldn't really have internet in the home quite yet. So on billboard.com, there's a news story about how there was going to be an open call for VJs the following Monday and Tuesday. And I was like, well, that's, that's it. That's what I got to do, right? Uh, that's my job. I got to go take it. So I called in sick that Monday and I got up at four in the morning and I took a taxi to Times Square. They had just moved into their big fancy Times Square studios and, uh, and I stood in line and I auditioned. And I was in and out by like 9 a.m. And I totally could have gone to work, but I was like, well, no, I've already called in sick. I'm not going to do it. I have to obsess about this all day. <laughs> and I took the next day off as well. And they said they would, uh, th I'm giving you the whole story. Yeah. And you you want a story that'll put a kid to sleep? This is it. <laughs> they said they would notify the top 10 by midnight on Tuesday. And my roommates were both traveling for work. And I sat alone in my apartment. I got a stack of movies from Blockbuster. <laughs> and I ordered a pizza. And I just sat and I had the phone in my lap and I just stayed at home because I was terrified to go anywhere else and I didn't have a cell phone. And I remember that I, I wrote a journal entry in my old like laptop and it was about how like, well, I guess I didn't make it because uh, it was like, you know, 1145 or something. But, you know, but I'm glad I went. I'm glad I auditioned. I'm glad I got to see the studio and it's, it planted a seed and it made me realize there was something else out there for me. And then at like for real 11.58, somebody from MTV called and said that I had made the top 10. And then I, I, don't, I don't think I've had a good night's sleep since. So <laughs> I, there were 
on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, no, sorry, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, there was a live show called MTV Live. And they had us on, like they, they would do a quick little bit with us, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday, they narrowed us down to five. And then Thursday, Friday, there was a quick segment with us. And then Saturday, there was like a three-hour live show that where there were a bunch of challenges and the viewer had to call in. Again, like nobody really, there was no widespread internet usage yet. People had to call in and vote. And they called in and they voted and I did not get it. But some spirit of emotional maturity visited me and said, like, this is a, a bummer. Be sad about it some other time. For now, go to the rap party, get everybody's business card. This was a networking opportunity that you'll never get again. Keep a smile on your, on your face, be sad at home, and then devote your energy into turning this into some kind of a job. And that's what I did. They brought me on to, to write some like weekend special type things. And then just because I was around the office, there were they were like, hey, you know, we have this idea for a show. Come try it out with us. And I did that. And the show, that idea became a show and I got attached to it. And then I was there for five years. Amazing. It was a much longer answer than, yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, it did fundamentally change my life, but it was not the result of like careful planning or plotting right. or anything like that. It was just really being at the exact right place at the exact right time and being old enough to recognize a good opportunity when it presents itself. And do you still keep in touch with Jesse? Oh, I mean, obviously we're texting all day long. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Jesse, who is referring to kids, was the guy who did win, who was who was a real big character. He was, and literally big. He was like seven feet tall, big bird-like, very skinny. He was a, uh, a kid who hung out at a place called uh, St. Mark's Place in New York. It's a, basically 7th Avenue for a couple of blocks at St. Mark's Place, and it's where all the punk rock kids would hang out. And, uh, and he was one of those, he was one of those kids, wild hair, crazy voice, real into heavy metal, a character. He was. I mean, you guys were quite the odd couple to get, like seeing you sure next to each other. It was just such a, a stark difference. It really, it really was. And, and, you know, he was, he was the, the kind of personality who attracted attention, which I was not. And that's fine. And I, I think I benefited from from that because it was like while he was getting attention, I could be there and be like get, like getting to know people and figuring out how I could be useful. Right. And, you know, like I really more than anything, of course, it was a dream to be put on air, but I never really expected that. What I wanted was just to be there. I just wanted to be in that office and be a part of the stuff that I that I watch, you know, like be have a hand in making the stuff that I'm obsessed with. You know, that's what I wanted. What is it for you, do you think, about pop culture? If you were born at a different time, do you think you would still have this obsession or did you come along? Because I feel like the 80s and MTV specifically, you know, it was the era of, of monoculture. We all watched the same movies. We all, yeah. you know, tuned into MTV. Like there was something that just brought everyone together. Do you think if you had been born at a different time, you would feel this way. I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of kid I would be if I were a kid now. There was an, an element of, in our upbringing, you know, we're, we're not exactly the same age, but we, we basically like, we, we grew up in the same time roughly. Right. And it was a time where you could kind of, as a teenager, as your identity is coming together, you could define yourself by the music that you listen to or by the kinds of 
movies that you liked or something or or like you know you're a sports person or you're this or that right so like you know in 1985 being a kid who liked the cure or whatever it was like okay that said something about you and it helped you sort of find yourself and define yourself and all that and now it's like everything is everybody's curating their own experience i don't know anybody who's like i like this kind of music and that's it like that's unnatural right and like kids just have access to everything now so i don't i don't know how i would there there was an element of myself that always wanted to like kind of buck the mainstream a little bit and i don't know how you do that now i don't know that there's a mainstream to buck anymore everything is so fragmented and you you are kind of everyone's curating their own entertainment and social media is curating it for you based on you know your likes and yeah. what you watch they just keep yeah. pumping more and more of that and i feel like we've sort of lost these water cooler events you know i guess barbie that would be the closest thing i guess so you know like those things that brought people like i, I mean because you, you mentioned the summer of 1984 in your mm -hmm. book and i was only seven years old but like i think wasn't that the same summer that karate kid came out and yep. so banana rama's song yeah mm -hmm. i was only seven but like i remember like those were it was just everywhere of course yeah 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 i mean it, it, the the big stuff was huge it was huge and we haven't we haven't really had that in a while i i i actually think that has a lot to do with why barbie did so well like we're, we're we have this like some of us anyway have this need to participate in a giant cultural event yeah you know top gun maverick was that i think last summer yeah and i think i guess what it is is it's it, it is still possible it is just so hard to break through the noise yeah it really is and you know i mean both of these things are huge pieces of intellectual property well like right everybody knows barbie everybody knows top gun it's hard to create something like that out of thin air yeah we, we saw barbie on sunday and it was there's still people showing up all decked out in pink and stuff it was fun that makes it an event yes people yeah i do feel like they crave that community and we've we've lost that in a way yeah i i totally agree so i read your your huey lewis article growing up i was a huge huey lewis fan because i just i just thought he was cool he was he was like the cool uncle right He's the coolest totally how was that experience with him up in montana a dream it was a dream i got the assignment and i could not believe it because of course you know i'd always wanted to meet him i never had had the opportunity and he's you know he's he's one of those massive mainstream stars that i just absolutely love without reservation like i i just think he's i think he's the bee's knees I, like i love his music i think he is so handsome and he's just like he exuded a kind of uncomplicated coolness he was you know by the time he got famous he was like 35 which is pretty rare it was rare back then it's i think even rarer now he was like a full-grown man and his his looks were like Robert Mitchum y kind of. Um, <laughs> not, and not like, you know, young dreamboaty. But yeah, he he clicked with me on every level. And so I got to to do a short profile on him for Esquire. And, you know, I got to go up to Montana and go to his ranch, which is huge and beautiful. It was the dead of winter, so we didn't get to do much, but he did, you know, drive me around the property on an ATV. We didn't we didn't like shoot at ducks. We didn't go fly fishing or anything, but I got to see it. 
And he was, you know, he's got stories for days. I wish I could have, I, I could have written a story that was five times as long. And yeah, I mean, he was just absolutely charming. And we've kept in touch a little bit since. He's the one person I have in my phone where I'm like, there should be a, like a child lock on it just in case, you know, because I, I like every now and then I get an urge just to like send a, hey, what's up text. And I probably <laughs> shouldn't. But I should set some like security questions or whatever, just to like interrupt my flow before I get the, I I, I have not done it. I will say I have not. That's amazing. I, I also, I just, I enjoyed reading that he was kind of inspired by punk rock too, because you wouldn't yeah, necessarily, yeah. Wouldn't <laughs> but yeah, he kind of did no, his own thing that. in his own, in his own square kind of like, he wasn't following any trends. He was just making music he liked. Exactly. And he had come back around to this very kind of bar band type of sound right. after, like you've said, like going to, you know, like doing the thing that you could do in the sixties and seventies which was just like go hitchhike around Europe for a while. Like he he just sort of was a was like a hobo in in Europe for a couple of years and you know put this band together and played on an Elvis Costello record, played on Elvis Costello's first record and had all you know had all these crazy experiences and then and then went back to the states and became the leader of you know pretty much the most mainstream band of the 1980s. What a life. How quickly do you turn those articles around. You know, it's funny. I have found that work expands or contracts to fill the space that you give it. So if I have an idea, like if there's something that has happened, if, if something has happened in the news, if there's a, a cultural thing to weigh in on and I have, I have a strong feeling about it and I know that I can write a tight little thousand words about it in an hour, I write a tight little thousand words about it. Yesterday, uh, Sinead O'Connor passed. And so that was for sure. That was right within my lane of things to do for them. But I also was like, I, I'm lucky enough to know a lot of people in like the Irish film and television world, and I wanted to get their voices in it. That that was like, this is gonna. I'm not gonna do the very quick piece. This is gonna be. I'll have it to you by the end of the day. And it took until the end of the day. And my column, I have deadlines every couple months, and it takes me a couple months to write those thousand words that yeah. I could probably do in an hour if I had an hour. So it, it really depends. But I find that I my best stuff comes most quickly when I have no time to undercut my own instinct. I, I think what I love most about your writing, it's simple. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's clever, it's concise, but it's not overwritten and it's incredibly accessible. Like I was plowing through this book. Thank you. And I have my attention span has gotten worse and worse as I've gotten older. Cell phones, social media, I think all of us feel very fragmented. Yeah. So to to hold a reader's attention in 2023 is a very difficult thing to do. But man, it just flows. And I guess also I'm a sucker for the pop culture stuff and growing up in that era. Like I definitely it felt nostalgic in a in a good way. Good. Thank you. Not in a Thank you. contrived way. Thanks. I appreciate that. And and I realize you're such a good writer because you started to learn to read when you were two. So the more you read, the better you write. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was a really, uh, I was a hungry reader when I was a kid because I could do it early and, and I loved to do it. And I, and my favorite writers were always writers whose voice was unmistakable. There's a guy named Paul Rudnick. who's a screenwriter who's written a few books. And I, I was a fan of his really early because it, it it was unmistakably his. It really, it sounded 
like his voice his voice was very clear and my stuff doesn't work unless my voice is absolutely clear the writing tool that i taught myself while i was writing this book has helped me so much since then and it is my advice to anyone who wants to write and who especially who wants to write like personal stuff personal essays and things of that nature when i signed the contract and got the you know had the responsibilities to write the book i like i was so blocked i felt like everything like i've i've said everything i have to say there's nothing left and anytime i really got into the meat of a story what i call the who cares chorus started singing in my head it was a constant refrain of like who cares and i couldn't get over it it was crippling and in a very frustrated moment i got very quiet i just tried to like meditate for a second and a voice within me said tell one person and in this case the story i was trying to tell i was like i know that like my friend scott loves this story tell scott don't think about talking to an audience. Don't think about talk, like writing for an editor. Don't think about how it's going to be received by anybody else. Tell one person. And each story is going to be different. Sometimes you want to tell your mother. Sometimes you want to tell somebody whose laugh you really like to hear. Somebody. Sometimes you want to tell somebody who doesn't quite get you or something. But just like just tell tell the story the way you would tell it to one person. And then everything else melts away and you're in conversation with that person or you're not really, you're monologuing toward that person, but you know what I mean. And you can get your voice and your point of view back. So that's my advice. That's great advice. Thank you. So what are you working on right now? Do you have any new, you've got uh, In Transit, that's still going, correct? Yeah, I do this weird little show for Hearst that's we're pretending is in an airport bar. <laughs> I do, yeah, I do a, a hundred bajillion things, which is uh, good, but also it becomes a little confusing. You know, I, uh, I have a couple podcasts that I do. I'm always sort of tinkering with uh, a second book. I'm writing for Esquire. I'm, I'm producing a uh, an investigative podcast that is coming out later in the year. I'm doing like, you know, I'm, I'm doing the LA hustle. So how do you settle down at night? How do you get to sleep? Typically toward the end of a day, my partner and I both mostly work from home. So we typically call call it a day or try to by seven, 6.30 or seven. And then we meet in the kitchen, chill tequila, cheese and crackers, talk about what's going on in the world. There's a, a station on iHeartRadio that plays all old Casey Kasem American Top 40 countdowns from the uh, 70s and 80s. Are you serious? We'll, we'll turn that on. Oh yeah, I'll send you the link. I'll send you the link. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's good. It's a dream. It's a dream. Yeah, and then uh, I, will, uh, I will cook dinner. We will adjourn to the uh, to the living room. There's either like one television show that we're sort of working our way through. Right now, it's The Righteous Gemstones. We just started season two of The Righteous Gemstones. But frequently, and this kind of also, you know, this speaks to the, the nostalgia that we were talking about. Often when it is time to sit on the couch and watch something, my brain is so fried that I don't want to follow story. I certainly don't want to get involved in the complicated relationship that I will have with an anti-hero of any kind. I can't get into succession. I don't want to watch anything about bad people. I don't want to watch any kind of documentaries about, you know, somebody getting killed or joining a cult or, you know, robbing old people or starting a multi-level marketing scheme or whatever. So in this world where almost everything exists on YouTube, we can watch an old episode of Solid Gold. We can watch, uh, you know, a 1985 episode of Top of the Pops. 
and, uh, and get our nostalgia fix and be comforted. And then, you know, we're off to bed by 10 at the latest. Sounds like a good way to unwind. It's not bad. Speaking of unwinding, are you ready to dive into some stories? I've never been more ready. All right. The word is lobster. Once upon a time, there was a lobster named Mac. And Mac lived off of the coast of Massachusetts, where there's tons of lobsters. People love lobsters in the Northeast. They love their lobster rolls. They love the tails, dip them in butter. But Mac was different from all the other lobsters. Mac was not a red lobster. Mac was a yellow lobster, a rare yellow lobster. And he struggled with this, you know? He looked around at all his lobster family, all his lobster buddies, when they would go to lobster school down at the bottom of the ocean. He was the only one that was yellow. And he felt a little bit left out. And the strange thing, too, with him, he wasn't just yellow. When it would get super dark, when they would get to the the very depths of the ocean, he would start glowing. And so you could see him from a long ways away, which is not really a good trait to have in an ocean full of predators, right? You're, you're, You're wanting to blend in on the ocean floor if you're any sort of sea life. But he couldn't blend in. He just, he would just stand out. And there were times they would go on these lobster school field trips and they would explore the depths and he would start glowing the deeper they got. He would do all sorts of things. He would try to cover himself up with squid ink to try and cloak the glowing because it was it was embarrassing and, and the, the other lobsters would laugh at him. But there was one lobster named Jerry and Jerry was his buddy because Jerry was a little different too. Jerry, he was a red lobster, but he had some some weird speckling, some unusual dots on him that made him stick out a little bit. But I mean, he didn't stick out like a glowing lobster, but he knew what Mac was going through. And they became friends because they were sort of misfits. So one dark night, because they did night school, and don't ask me why, but that's just a thing the lobsters do. So one dark night, they all went out on a field trip and Mac saw something interesting in the distance and he and Jerry went off to investigate. What Mac and Jerry saw was a school of mackerel. They'd never seen mackerel before. Mackerel, as you know, are fairly large fish. They're green. Uh, They travel in massive, massive schools. And when they swim through the water, It's like a silk handkerchief flying through the air. It's beautiful. And the closer they got, the light that came off of Mac shone on to this great handkerchief of mackerel. It was like what you and I might experience at a fireworks display. It was just a dazzling canvas of of color, iridescent color, sometimes green, sometimes a dazzling blue, uh, sometimes, sometimes a pink. Mac and Jerry were just transfixed by it. 
they couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And they, they followed the school of mackerel as they swum through the water so beautifully. And before they knew it, they looked around and they did not see anything that reminded them of where they were supposed to be. I mean, they were down there to visit the, the wreck of a, a whaling ship and they did not see the wreckage of a whaling ship anywhere anywhere near them. They were all alone. And Jerry was furious. Jerry liked to follow the rules. Jerry's dad was actually the principal of Lobster Night School. And Jerry said, what have you done? We are lost now. We've been separated from our class. My father is going to be furious. You have wrecked everything worse than that whaling boat. Oh, I am so mad at you, lobster mac and cheese. That's what people called Mac when they were mad at him. Because cheese, because he was yellow. And lobster, because he was a lobster. And also lobster mac and cheese was also a very popular dish on the, uh, the coasts of Massachusetts. What am I going to do with you? Jerry said. And he, he swam off back to where he thought the rest of the class was. And Mac said, hey, stop, wait, wait, let me come with you. And Jerry clack, went like that with his claw, like as if to say, shush, don't say anything more. And Jerry disappeared into the darkness of the, the Atlantic Ocean. So there Mac was all by himself, glowing in the darkness of the Atlantic Ocean. And he was starting to get a little nervous. He was out there, he was seeing barracudas swim by some sharks and he was all alone Jerry had had left him and he didn't know what to do so first he started swimming after Jerry in the direction Jerry went but a current came just as he was about to reach this ridge the last spot where he saw Jerry and this current just swept him far far away from the ridge and from Jerry, way, way far away from the shipwreck they were supposed to be exploring. He had no idea. He was tumbling and tumbling into this current. And as he tumbled and he tumbled and he tumbled, the current shot him out into a different part of the ocean. The water temperature was slightly warmer. And the fish looked a little bit different. And then he saw something very curious in the distance. He saw a faint glow and he thought well this is this is curious and so he started swimming towards the glow because he was so far away from his school the life he knew he didn't have any idea how he would ever get back and so he just thought you know what i'm just gonna swim towards this glow and hope for the best and so that's what he did he swam and he swam and he swam and the glow got brighter and brighter and brighter and as he approached, he realized that the glow was coming from not one, not two, but dozens of yellow lobsters. They were just like him. He had never seen another glowing lobster and he was just overcome. And so he swam towards the lobsters. The first lobster to greet him was an older lobster. He had a, he had a long white beard. Uh, his name was Roy. And Roy said, who goes there? 
And Mac said, it's, it's me. My name's Mac. I'm, I'm a yellow lobster just like you. He was, he was like, shocked. And Roy said, why do you look so surprised? Aren't all lobsters yellow? And Mac said, no, no, lobsters are red. I'm weird. I'm the outcast of my lobster school because I'm yellow. And I said, well, yellow lobsters are beautiful. Tell us about these red lobsters. And Mac told him about, about his friend Jerry, about his mom and his dad who were red, about all of his friends at school, about his teacher, about even his principal. And it was so obvious to Roy that even though Mac felt different, from the red lobsters that he grew up with. He loved them. They were his home. Mac said, I feel so good here around lobsters who are just like me. But Roy said, no, your, your home is with the red lobsters. They've given you something different. They've given you the experience of being an outsider. A anyone can fit in. You are special. You're as special as a red lobster would be over here where the yellow lobsters are. Let's get you home. Back to the red lobsters from whence you came. That's how old people talk, or lobsters. Roy said, Mac, follow me. We'll light the way. And they swum back to where Mac had come from. Now, there was a very powerful current, as you remember. So it was much harder to swim against it than it was to get pushed along by it. But they went. And because there were so many of them, they lit up everything around them. And just as they were about to tuck her out, just as they were about to say, God, it's too hard, the current stopped. And off in the distance, a shimmering, beautiful scarf of mackerel. And it lit up more beautifully than ever because there were so many glowing yellow lobsters to light it up. And Max said, I think I'm back where I started. And, and just when he said that from behind a reef, he heard a voice. Is that you, lobster mac and cheese? Jerry, said Mac. I found you. Jerry peeked up and said, where did you go? Mac said, it's a long story. I'll get into it later. But our friends are going to light our way back home. And Mac's red lobster mom and dad were so excited to see him. All of his friends from school were so excited to see him. And they were so excited to see the other lobsters, they had never seen that many glowing lobsters. And Mac came back from that journey with a new sense of identity and belonging and appreciation for being a glowing lobster in a red lobster world. And he glowed from that day forward with great pride among the rest of his red lobster family and friends. The end. Dave Holmes, yeah. are you ready for your solo story? Oh, good Lord. I don't know. I don't know if I am, but we'll find out together. All right. The word is basketball. The last class of the day, 2.30 p.m., was P.E., physical education. That's what they called it. And at Sawyer Grammar School, you could not get out of PE for anything. If you were in third grade, like Lil Eddie was, 
Man, that PE teacher, Mr. Dawes, would not give you any excuses to get out. You could be like, oh, my stomach hurts. You'd be like, nope, get in the locker room and put on your shorts. Today we're playing basketball. You could say, oh, but my, my grandma, she's very sick. And you'd say, no, get yourself in there. Put on your shoes, get out here. Today we're playing dodgeball. You could, you could say, Mr. Dawes, my head fell off this morning. And he would say, I'm looking at you and you look like you got a head like any other kid. Get in there and put on your Sawyer Grammar School t-shirt because we're doing waffle ball. Now, a lot of kids liked PE. It was fun. You could blow off some steam at the end of a busy school day. But sometimes it was just a little too much. Sometimes kids played kind of rough. Little Eddie was one of those kids who would rather be sitting on the swings, reading a book, or playing Foursquare, a very gentle game that you play with chalk and something on a pavement. Little Eddie hated PE. And as if to underscore how bad PE was for Little Eddie, it was right after reading was his favorite subject. So let me tell you what happened last Tuesday to Little Eddie. It was reading class at the end of the day. They were reading Amelia Bedelia. Remember that one? You know that story? If you know Amelia Bedelia, it's a, a series of stories about a woman who works as a, I think she's, she like works for a family. She like is a housekeeper or a nanny or something like that. But she always gets things wrong. Like she, she takes things very literally. So if somebody in Amelia Bedelia's family that you work for said, oh, I am fit to be tied, she'd be like, oh, I'll be right back. And she'd come back with rope. Because she'd be like, you're fit, you wanna be tied? And the person would be like, no, I don't wanna be tied. But she would take things very literally. And it was little Eddie's favorite thing in the whole wide world. And they read an Amelia Bedelia story. And then it was time for PE. And on that, on Tuesdays at PE, it was basketball which little Eddie hated the most. Anyway, the bell rang and all the kids ran out to the gym. Little Eddie with his head hanging down as though it were falling off, but it weren't, wasn't, went off to the gym. And right at that time, Doug, who was little Eddie's best friend, came up to him and said, how are you gonna try and get out of PE today? And Lily said, you know what? I don't have any, I don't have any fight left in me. I'm just gonna get through it. I get through this next half hour, and I'm just gonna go home. I'm gonna read more. I'm gonna read more books. I've been wanting to get into Encyclopedia Brown. Doug said, "All right." And they went in to the gym, and they went up to their little lockers, and they put on their little Sawyer Grammar School t-shirts and shorts, and they went out onto the gym floor. And that is when it was time for teams to be picked, which. If Little Eddie hated basketball, he hated the team picking even more because he was always the last to be picked. And that meant that the team that he was on didn't really want him and it filled him with shame. But on that day, Mr. Dawes saw Little Eddie, saw how hang dog upset he was about playing basketball, and said, Little Eddie, 
Come up here. You're our captain. <gasps> oh, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't. Like, I mean, he knew he could pick Doug, and then Doug could be on his team. But like, he didn't know how to put a good basketball team together. He didn't know how to make these cuts. He didn't have it in him to be as, as mean as some of the other kids were. He'd have to pick somebody last, and that's a terrible thing. And then to make it worse, Mr. Dawes said the other captain, it's going to be Doug. Yeah, little Eddie's best friend. They were going to have to play against each other, which he would hate even more because then he wouldn't even have his best friend to rely on. But that's the way it was. It's the way it goes in the world of PE. So little Eddie decided to do something counterintuitive. That means the opposite of what you would think would be the right thing to do. Started assembling his team. The first person he picked? Yeah, Nancy. Nancy, the, the, the girl who, who hated to run. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, see, how, I'm gonna see how Nancy does. He picked Nancy first. Doug did the, the smart thing and picked Jimmy. Jimmy, you know, the, the kid who already plays basketball for a league outside of school? Picked Jimmy. Got back to Lil Eddie. Lil Eddie was like, well, uh, I, uh, Lamar, come over here. Lamar loved science. He had big, thick glasses and orthopedic shoes. He couldn't even wear sneakers in the gym. He had to wear big orthopedic shoes. It sounded like he was clogging when he would walk. And then we went back to Doug. Doug picked Penny, who uh, was a, a junior Olympian. I mean, it was in horseback riding, but still, uh, she was a very good athlete. And so it went. Little Eddie picked himself the worst team that he could find. And Doug, being, you know, slightly smarter and more likely to do the expected thing, picks a team full of athletes. And Mr. Doss blew that whistle. And the game began. But also, at that exact same time, is when the tornado blew in. You remember that? Do you remember the tornado that hit the town of Sawyer last Tuesday? That's when it happened. And it wasn't supposed to touch ground anywhere near the gym, but it did. It touched down right next to the gym and it blew the roof clean off. The roof came off of the Sawyer Grammar School Gymnasium. And the athletic kids got blown into the air first, right? It, it makes sense. They were more aerodynamic, but they all managed to hold on to the, to the basketball hoop or to the rafters that still remained. And then, and then the tornado blew off and away and out of town. And all those good athlete kids were hanging on to things way up high in the air. And that's when little Eddie said, Lamar, can you build a ladder? And Lamar said, can I? And he said, Nancy, I know you don't like to run, but you can very slowly and carefully walk up a ladder, can't you? And she said, I sure can. And the way that that team worked together to get the kids from the high places in that gym, well, that was teamwork. Now, Mr. Doss was pretty shaken up, as you would imagine. But once all the, the kids were down from their high places, he blew a whistle. He said, Little Eddie, you're a basketball natural. The end. <laughs>